Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, which is perfect. May it revive our soul. Thank you for your statutes, which are trustworthy. May they make us who are simple wise in the ways of God. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be our tutor and our guide this morning as we look at your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Good morning. Change is something people react to differently. Transition for some is an opportunity for a sort of adrenaline rush. They get all pumped up. For others, they get deflated. They hunker down. Whatever your reaction to transition and change, it can surface aspects of your personality, aspects of your identity. For some, during a time of change, what counts most is their family, their blood relationships, racial relationships. And their mission in life, their mission is to do their duty, to meet social obligations. But others, it's all about individual freedom and personal expression. And their mission in life is to be successful in their jobs, in their college, in their relationships. But when there's a failure at work or in the lab, in the office, it can be a crushing blow to your very identity. And when there's a breakdown in relationships, what's known as moralistic therapeutic deism or hyper-individualism fails to have the resources that enable you to forgive, to be reconciled. So the question this morning, as someone has asked, is where can you find an identity? A true identity, one that is not imposed from the outside, one that is not about meeting the cultural and traditional expectations, nor one that is merely driven and engineered by our own aspirations and feelings. Where can we find an identity that is not a false self, but a true self? One that is sustainable during times of transition and change. Where can we find it? And I want to persuade you this morning that we can find it, some clues to that identity in our passage this morning from Mark 8. Clues from another, an external authority, if you will. And as we look together at this passage, I'd like to look at it in two places, two halves. First of all, verse 27 to 33, about Jesus' identity and his mission. And secondly, how that impacts the disciples, verse 34 to chapter 9, verse 1. So first of all, Jesus' identity and his mission. We read that he went with his disciples to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, on the way is a marking term of on the way throughout the whole of the gospel. It's about on the way. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They answered, some said, John the baptizer. Others, Elijah the prophet. Still others, one of the prophets. If we went out this morning onto the common, or up Beacon Hill, or down downtown crossing, and we did a poll asking people, who do people say that I am? I wonder if the answers we've received would be the same as we find in Mark chapter 8. 
But rewind the tape 2,000 years ago when what was buzzing around social media were two iconic national figures. One was John the Baptizer, the second was Elijah the Prophet. John the Baptizer we've already met, we've been introduced in chapter 1 verse 5. He has a baptism for the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Basically put, his message was Israel is morally bankrupt is spiritually dead. And what is needed is a national resurrection, a national rebirth. And that can only come through repentance. Elijah the prophet, well, he was probably the most fascinating figure in the first century Judaism. 2 Kings 2.11 tells us that he was translated from earth to heaven. Without seeing death, he was carried on a fiery chariot. And it was believed that Elijah the prophet would comfort the needy and the sick. We even see allusions to it at the end of the gospel when Jesus is on the cross. He's calling Elijah. Elijah also was to be the one who would forerun. He would come ahead of time of the great and terrible day of the Lord in Malachi 4, 5 and 6. And Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's the main question in Mark's Gospel. When will people understand and grasp who this person is? The supernatural forces get it in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 5. They get who this person is. They understand his identity, and it threatens them. When will you understand who I am? Who do you say that I am? In fact, it is the basic human question. Are there any questions we have in our own day? What have we to make of climate change? How are different races in this country to be reconciled? What are we to do with the judicial and the legislative system in this country? What are we to think about the social construction of gender in our contemporary culture? How are we to organize life in our communities given the advances in technology with artificial intelligence? primary and burning and urgent questions for us today. And yet behind them all is another question. Who do you say that I am? It's the question fundamental to all other questions. And the answer to that question impacts the answer to all other questions. Who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you're the Christ. He gets the answer right, but his understanding is completely wrong. We might not want to be too hard on Peter here. After all, there's been 200 years of attempts to overthrow the oppressors, the Romans, that have been crushed by the Roman military. And so there was, at that time, this aspiration for a military and political solution to the problems of oppression. But the word Christ, the anointed one, could be used of a pagan king, for example, Cyrus in Isaiah 45.1. For the Jews, the Messiah was to be a deliverer, a national leader, a king who would defeat their enemies and who would bring about an era, a new era of justice and peace and glory altogether. But for Peter, his script was still following the culture. He was looking for a deliverer with a sword, not a towel. He was looking for a deliverer on a horse, not a donkey. He was looking for some public proclamation from the capital city, from Jerusalem itself, not from some obscure northern town, Caesarea Philippi. But now 
Now the cat is out of the bag. This dividing point in the whole gospel, the cat is out. And what is Jesus going to do about it? He's going to teach. He's a teacher. And why does he have to teach? He has to teach because the crowds fail to understand who he is. And those closest to him who've been drinking and eating with him fail to interpret who this person is. So he teaches. But what is it that he teaches? We read that he teaches about a son of man. It's a somewhat ambiguous phrase, an enigmatic Greek translation of a Semitic idiom. It could mean a reference to a member of a species. It could be a general description of humanity. We find it's used 81 times in the gospel. In fact, it's Jesus' favorite term for himself, the Son of Man. It could be a self-modest phrase that he uses to describe himself. But we know within first century Judaism, this term was never used in conjunction with the Messiah. And so Jesus teaches about the Son of Man. Now we know that there is a political and a military expectation for a deliverer under occupation. But there's also another thing going on in the background here, and it's a theological expectation. And we find that from Daniel chapter 7, Jesus quoting Daniel 7:13, when he talks about a vision in the night. And with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man comes to the Ancient of Days and is presented before him. This son of man is hum human. And if you've read Daniel 7, you know that the previous leaders were beastly terrifying ogres, if you will. But this Son of Man is humanity itself. This Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, and he is to be the judge in the eschaton. He is to be the apocalyptic ruler who is to come and that all nations are to bow down before him. He is the one from Daniel 7. And yet when he teaches about this, for 500 years the Jews have been expecting their interpretation of this passage had been of this end-of-the-age judge who would come. And so it would be quite natural for them when he said, the Son of Man must, fill in the blank, if you were a Jew in the first century, filling in the blank would be, he must conquer, he must rule, he must judge, he must overpower. This is who the Son of Man is, he must overpower. And yet Jesus, in selecting that one verb, overturns 500 years of biblical misinterpretation. It had been there all along in the scriptures, but they hadn't seen it. They hadn't seen the connection that Jesus is making through the motifs of the Old Testament, of this fully orbed view of who the Son of Man is. C.F.D. Mule, in his analysis of this, talks about the articular noun there. You have the Son of Man, not a, the Son of Man, the representative of Israel. He, after all, is the Israelite who has always lived before God himself, who has always kept the law, has always kept the covenant. He's been in perfect relationship with the Ancient of Days. He is the representative. But by the same token, he is also the representative from God. One might say he is the vineyard's son come to the tenants. He is the final and the last representative to come. And so he comes as this ruler, and yet Jesus says he must suffer. Why is it that he must suffer? He has done nothing wrong. He has not broken the law. And yet he must suffer because he is the representative of Israel. And Israel has transgressed the covenant, has broken the law. 
All the curses and the punishments that are outlined in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28, all of them are poured out on the Son of Man. He must go into exile for their exile. He must come under the full weight of the law, that they should have come under the full weight of the law. He himself feels the burden of a corrupt judicial system. He feels the full weight of the just wrath of Almighty God against the sins of the world. He suffers. He must suffer. Why must he suffer? Because it's been prophesied in Isaiah 53. It is the will of the Lord to put him to grief, to crush him. Jesus is combining these elements. And so here we have the Son of Man, the one who is destined to become the king, the ruler of Israel, and yet he is the one who is discarded, rejected, shamed, dishonored to be the ruler. Here is the one who is to be the ruler of all the nations, of all the languages, of all the kingdoms, who should follow him, and yet he is condemned by the nations and skewered on a cross, naked. And yet Jesus also refers to another text in our passage. He says, yes, the Son of Man must, he must be suffered and be rejected by the elders and the rulers and the teachers of the law, the chief priests. He must be killed. But, as he alludes to Hosea 6 that we had read this morning, on the third day he must be raised from the dead. He is condemned by the world, but he is to be vindicated through the resurrection of God himself. So Jesus, the son, of, the son of man, on the way, the new Moses, on the new exodus to the, with the new Israelite. This is the first proclamation that Christ makes in this, this watershed moment within the book. There are three predictions. This is the first one. Each prediction emphasizes the way. It is not the way of triumph, but the way of suffering. The way of suffering on condemnation and ultimately of vindication and resurrection. This is the way. And Jesus spoke plainly about it. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. And Jesus turned and looked at the disciples. He rebuked Peter. He rebuked Peter. Peter was the, the leader of the new Israel. This, this man was to be the leader of this new community of God's new Israel on the way to the new Jerusalem. He rebukes the leader of this group. says, get behind me, Satan. Why does he say that? He says it because he has in mind the things of men, not the things of God. That, in Jesus' mind, is satanic thought. Satanic thought is to put men and women in the center of God's purposes rather than God himself. And in first century Israel, for a disciple to rebuke the rabbi was unthinkable. It was impertinence. To shame your teacher in public. And Jesus says, get behind me. Get in line. I lead, you follow. I direct, you submit. Absolutely. This is the Son of Man speaking. You get behind me. And it is, in fact, a sober warning to disciples of every age and in every place. Not to get in front of the Son of Man, not to be at the side of the Son of Man giving him advice, not to be out in the wings pontificating and observing, but to get in line. Behind me. That is the rightful place on this road, on this way to the cross. That is the way of this Son of Man. Well, 
We've seen his identity and his mission, which is to go to the cross. Ultimately, it is to be resurrected, ascended, and rule from heaven, and then to come back as the ruler of all time. But how does that impact disciples in their own identity and their own understanding of missions? I think there are three ways that we can see from our passage how the identity of the Son of Man impacts the identity of disciples and of their mission in every age. First of all, it's personal, verse 34. Second of all, it's cultural, verse 35 to 37. And thirdly, it's collectively in 38 to 91. So first of all, personally, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I remember as a freshman student, my first week, in fact, when I was a student at Cambridge in England, and a pastor from the town led me to Christ. He said to me, Julian, to become a Christian is like joining a golf club or a country club. Really? <laughs> said, yes, the entrance fee has been already paid. The accounts are completely settled. But the annual dues are everything you've got. Everything in your bank account, everything on your schedule, all your priorities, 24-7, 365 days a year, absolute surrender. That's what it means to follow Christ. Thanks very much. <laughs> if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. As a college student, we often had visiting speakers. And on one occasion, we had a speaker from Romania. His name was Richard Wurmbrandt. He's not very well known, perhaps, today. But back then, he had a story. He had stood up to the communist government in Romania. And as a result, he was put in prison for 15 years. Three of those years, he was underground 12 feet in a cell where there was no light, no windows. There was absolute silence. The, the guards wore slippers to not have any noise. And during that time, he wrote sermons to himself. He wrote 350 sermons, and he memorized them all. And they brutally tortured him. On his feet, his bones, his back, lacerated. One can only imagine three years of torture, what it was like, not only to his body, but to his soul and his personality. Well, I listened to this man, and I thought to myself, I want to shake his hand. I want to look into his eyes. And I remember, not any details, but just that depth. There was something, something very attractive, very warm, very powerful in this man. He had taken up his cross. And any who follow Christ must be prepared to suffer. They must deny themselves, give up their ambitions. They must be prepared to take up the cross and follow me. Get in line behind me. Not in front of me, not beside me, not somewhere out in the wings. Behind me. It's intimately personal. Now, to our culture today, it sounds a bit of a downer. We're democratic, individualistic, scientific, technological people. Why would anyone in their right mind want to do that? Well, I think of the words of C.S. Lewis, when he said, if you give up your life, you'll find it. You'll find your real self. If you lose your life, you'll save it. 
Nothing that you haven't given away will ever really be yours. Nothing that hasn't died in you will ever really be raised from the dead. If you look to yourself, if you look to your own needs, in the end, all you'll find is hatred, loneliness, despair, ruin, rage, and decay. But if you look to Christ, you'll find him, and with him, everything thrown in. So I don't know, are there there's those amongst us this morning who have not yet submitted to Christ, have not given themselves to the Son of Man? And so I invite you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. It will cost you everything if you choose to follow him. But if God is knocking on your heart, if God is working in you, I encourage you after the service to come up to the front. And there will be those who will be delighted to talk to you more about your questions. Who do you say that he is? It's intensely personal. But there is more. And he says in verse 35 to 37, that there's a cultural element. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my name and the gospel's sake will find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give, gain, gain in return for his soul? There is, at a time of change, a choice. A choice of what kind of identity we are to live, and the implications of that are profound. Are we to live in a way that feeds our own comfort and our own convenience? Are we presumptively to feather our own nest? Are we to rely on our own accolades, our own bank accounts, or our zip code, or our pedigree, whatever it is? Or are we to live this way of the cross? Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Well, this new life, this new identity affects change. And we see it in the scriptures and we see it in history. We see it in scripture, for example, in the book of Acts. In Acts 2, for example, we see the effect of this new identity, the effect of this new mission on the Jewish community. The Jewish community is converted. In Acts 2, no longer is their center of gravity the temple or the Torah or the sacrifices. Their center of gravity is the Son of Man, is Christ himself. He is the epicenter of their world, of the Jewish world. And so they pray together, they break bread together, they witness together to the Christ within this Jewish community in Jerusalem. But when we flick over the pages to chapter 11, something new has happened. There's a change. A watershed moment has occurred in the history of this new Israel. Why? Because we're in Antioch. And in Antioch, we read in chapter 11, 20, that some of them from Cyprus and Cyrene, Cyrene is in Africa, some of them spoke to the Greeks also, telling them of the good news of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Well, what's going on? They didn't preach Christ. That wouldn't have made sense. Christ was the nat national deliverer, the if you like, the political savior of Israel. They didn't preach Christ. That wouldn't make sense to Greeks outside of Israel in Antioch. No, they preached the Lord Jesus. Why did they preach the Lord Jesus? Because he was the Lord of heaven and earth. He was the Lord of life and death. He was the Lord over all the nations, over Caesar, over the kings and queens. He was the Lord over all creation, over all history and time. He was the Lord of all. 
So they preached him. And the Lord's hand was on them, and a great many believed and turned to the Lord. And we see in the rest of the New Testament is basically a discussion of what does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus outside of Israel as the gospel goes from Jerusalem all the way through to Rome. What does it mean to these new believers in the Lord Jesus? Should they observe the dietary restrictions? Should they be circumcised? Should they keep the Sabbath? What does it mean? And every time the gospel jumps into a new culture, as it crosses this watershed moment, there are two questions that are raised. First of all, what do we do? How do we behave? And second of all, what do we think? What do we do and what do we think? New questions and new cultural contexts. And we've seen in Acts 11 that the cultural messaging of the gospel had to change. The packaging of the gospel had to change. That Lord Jesus was still the same. He was the center stage of their message. But for the Greeks to grasp it, this philosophical and literal literary community and society, they needed a different message, if you will. Coherent and consistent with the Christ, but the Lord Jesus. And every time the gospel goes to that new cultural context, there needs to be a re-messaging of what the gospel is. It's happened in history. I think of the example of Iceland. In 1000 AD, about, there had been missionaries who'd gone to Iceland. And Iceland was very different from Antioch, very different from Rome. It was a tribal community, a pre-literate society. And in Iceland, there had been some Icelanders who had believed in the Lord Jesus. There was no central government at the time, and there was a conflict brewing, almost to the point of civil war within the families. The, the heads of the families would meet in an assembly to deal with the crises of the community. And one of the Icelandic Christians said, we need an elder to arbitrate between the different factions in our community. And so they selected one of the Icelandic elders, one of the warriors. And for one day and for one night, as they all waited with bated breath outside his home, he covered his head with a cloak and sat and thought, how can we solve this problem? The next day, he emerged from his house and he announced, announced that Iceland would follow the Christian way and that this would have implications, cultural implications for them. No longer would they follow their traditional festivals. They would follow the festival of Easter and Christmas. They would keep Sunday. No longer would they visit the shrines of Odin and Thor. They would worship Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. No longer would they eat horse flesh. No longer would they take their baby girls and put them outside in the freezing weather to leave them to die. Why? Because they had now accepted the Lord Jesus. And they recognized for their tribal consensual society that they needed one law and one custom to bring about social harmony and peace. The gospel has cultural implications. And every time it jumps to a new cultural context, it requires repackaging a new cultural message that's consistent with Christ, consistent with all of Scripture, but empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we see 
the Son of Man's identity and mission affecting individuals intensely and personally by taking up their cross and following him. We see the cultural impact of it. And thirdly, we also see in verses 38 to 91, we see the collective impact. Jesus said, whoever, whoever's ashamed of me in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory and his angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, some are standing here who will not taste death until I see the kingdom of God come in power. How, in our own day, how do disciples remain faithful to Jesus, not be ashamed of Jesus, his gospel, his words, and not appear bigots or pathological or rigid or narrow-minded? How is it possible to remain faithful to Jesus? Jesus said to Peter, for example, follow me at the very beginning of the Gospels. And he says, follow me at the very end, the last command. How do we follow Jesus in our cultural context today? How are we to be faithful to him and not betray him, not deny him or abandon him as Mark did? What does that look like? Well, as one person has suggested, it depends on our identity and our mission. If our identity is based on the crucified Christ rather than on our own culture, rather than merely on our achievements, an identity that is seeking to empty itself, to give itself. As Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As I was talking to one of our missionaries this week from Central Asia who said quite wisely that God works in a person before he works through a person that there must be this cross-shaped redemption experienced intensely and personally in their own lives, and then that works its way out in a cross-shaped mission. Well, Jesus is talking about an adulterous and sinful generation. How is it possible for disciples today to live faithfully to him? Well, I think it is to receive this new identity not to be crushed by the identity from tradition or social expectation, not to have an identity that is manufactured and engineered by our own fantasies, our own desires, our own aspirations merely, but to be received in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, Paul said, she or he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come, in Christ. And we have that opportunity this coming season of Lent. It's an opportunity for repentance. It's an opportunity for reflection, an opportunity to see ourselves as Christ sees us, to see what is our true self, not our broken self, not our false self, our projected or imagined self. How does Christ see you? How does he see me? And lent us an opportunity to repent of our sins, those patterns of sinful behavior, of sinful interactions. Lent us an opportunity to identify our idols of those things that we'd sacrifice anything for, good things that we've made ultimate things. Lent is an opportunity for reconciliation with our maker and with our brother and sister. And so I encourage you, invite you to come this Wednesday for our Ash Wednesday service, to sign up for the Lenten Discipleship Institute, to sign up for the daily devotionals. Or oh, there are so many resources available today across the Christian community to take advantage of this season, not to get brownie points, not to get a, an A on the report card, but to humble yourself before him. 
And there is a collective element to this within our generation, within our collective community experience. What does this look like? We know John, when he came, called the nation to repentance. It was a, a national call, a rallying cry out of their moral bankruptcy and their spiritual dead, deadness. He called them to repent. And we see a similar corporate cry in Paul's teaching. I think particularly of the book of Galatians. Well, Paul in Galatians 4.19 says, My little children, I am in anguish like childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is formed in you. Not, it's a, it's a plural pronoun. You collectively, you in Galatia, until Christ is seen in you, the crucified Christ, the resurrected Christ, the ascended Christ, is experienced and seen in you. Why? Because there was no cookie-cutter Christ. That the Christ of Galatia was not merely a branding exercise from Jerusalem that would be a copycat version in Galatia. That the Christ in Galatia was uniquely Galatian. As we might say, the Christ in our collective community, the Christian community in Boston, is to be distinctive of New England and is different from the Christ that would be seen in New York or Atlanta or Chicago or San Diego. And we might say that the Christ that is fully formed in Fukuoka in Japan or in Chiang Mai in Thailand or in Cairo, Egypt or Nairobi in Kenya, that the Christ that is witnessed there, the crucified and resurrected Christ, will look a little bit different. There will be distinctives to it. But for the generation to come, for the community, that is what Jesus is talking about. That's what Paul is talking about for a generation. And we've seen it happen. We saw it happen in Acts 2, where the Jewish community was converted. We've seen it in Acts 11, where the Greek community, the Lord Jesus was worshipped in the Greek community in a new way. It presented new questions and new issues for what they did and how they lived. Created new theological issues of the Incarnation and the Trinity that were different, for example, in tribal communities where there were different issues about sin and atonement. It creates a new agenda, if you will, within that cultural context. And so Christ in us, we've seen it in history, we've seen it in Iceland, we've seen it in Hawaii. From 1820 to the 1860s, we saw how a whole culture, a whole community, a hierarchical culture was transformed by the Lord Jesus in their healthcare, in their education, in their political system. It went south after the 1860s, but we saw it happen. And by God's grace and in his mercy, I pray that we may see it happen in Boston. I pray that we may see it happen in New England. I pray that we will see it in this time of transition. As we transition in a new identity in Christ, Christ crucified, Christ raised, Christ ascended, and one day to come in glory. Let us bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, wake us up from our slumber. Turn us away from our comfort, our convenience. Rebuke us in our pride and our self-reliance. And send your spirit that we may deny ourselves individually and corporately and take up our cross, be willing to suffer for Christ and follow you, get behind you in what you are doing in this city, in New England at this time, in our generation, and we will give you all the praise and all the glory.
because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.